Bibles with you, please turn to Mark chapter 6. There's an insert in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible that has the text on it. There's also Pew Bible in front of you. Mark is the second book in the New Testament if you're looking. What does the glory of Almighty God have to do with my everyday life? That's an important question. Does it have anything to do with my everyday life? Should it? It sure doesn't feel like it has much to do with my life, does it? When I'm struggling, when I'm confused, when I'm afraid, what use is God's glory? It feels like such a faraway thing, so abstract. Maybe the first thing we need to do is define the glory of God before we can sufficiently answer the question, which is not necessarily an easy or a quick thing to do, but in its own unique way, that's precisely what our text in Mark this morning does for us. It it even gives us a preview of the critical truth we'd hear later from Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 when he said that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. We see it there. If we wanted to define it like as a textbook or theologically, categorically, we could say something like um, the glory of God is the public display of His attributes and we would be technically correct When we said that, when when he does something, what you're seeing, what you're in awe of is his glory. But that's not all we should say about it because when God truly went public, he did so in a person. Not necessarily in great works or in attributes, but in a person. And in that person resides all the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 3, John 1, 14, Colossians 2, 9. Jesus Christ is the glory of God, this person. Now, we're in a much better position to at least begin to understand what the glory of God uh, does or could have to do with my everyday life since we know Jesus lives with us there, is with us in every moment of our lives. Remember, everything Mark has done so far in his gospel has been to answer the question or beg the question, who is this man? But as it becomes more obvious who he is to the reader... His disciples who were in the moment, the people around him, but in particular, Mark focuses on his disciples. They, the more that gets revealed, are becoming more confused. Their hearts are actually hardening. Jesus is showing his glory. Here in the last part of Mark chapter 6, he does it so explicitly, we have to wonder how it could be missed at all. And yet it is. And so, beloved Maybe, as we see that, we would realize about ourselves that when we ask the question, what does the glory of God have to do with my everyday life, it might be because our hearts are already hardening. Because after all this time and all these years that we've been a part of His church or have known Him and all He's done, it's like we come to understand less about Him. We feel further away from Him, not closer to Him. Maybe we don't believe the glory of God is beautiful and worthwhile for its own sake before we get to, yeah, but what does this have to do with me? Maybe if there isn't some immediately practical application of it for my life, we don't find him that interesting. We don't find his glory that appealing or relevant to us. That's not a sign of his lack of worth or his lack of glory, or whether or not his glory is meaningful and valuable, it's a sign, if we'll see it, that our hearts have or are becoming petrified. What could be causing our hearts to harden to the Lord that we love? How can we see the glory of God in his Son once more? Jesus Christ is present with us in order that we would behold his glory. And in so doing, by that become His faithful followers. Let me pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is perfect. It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is infallible. So, Lord, we must hear it. We must hear it. We must submit to it. We must break before it. You are everything, God, so please help me preach like You are. Please help me make sense. Please help me be clear. Not proud, not distracting. Father, please help me. Please help everyone who will hear this morning. Help everyone to hear. Save, Father. Refresh, renew, convict.
May your spirit move among us by your word. We ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We pick up in verse 45 here of Mark chapter 6. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Mark's account of the feeding of the 5,000 isn't as long or as detailed as John's. Uh, but it's possible, it, I think it's likely that Jesus' urgency here to send the disciples away quickly was due to the response of the people to the miracle of the bread and the fish. In John 6, when the people realized that Jesus had done this, they tried to take him by force, John says, by force and make him the king. But Jesus, as we find, is not that kind of king. He wasn't here really to kick out the Romans. He came mainly to proclaim the gospel of God. Mark tells us explicitly in his account that Jesus did this miracle because he had compassion on the people. He's not there really to do things to get the people to vote for him, so to speak. But whatever the reason, he sent the disciples ahead of him, probably to nearby Bethsaida where he planned to meet them after he dismissed the crowds. Uh, If he was delayed, then they could go on westward to Capernaum and Gennesaret. That helps explain why when several hours later the disciples are still just in the middle of the lake. They had gone to Bethsaida waited for Jesus, but he was delayed on the mountain, and so they went on towards Gennesaret. Jesus had went up to the mountain alone to pray. Now, there are images throughout this section that recall the Exodus that are meant to put it on our minds, recall Israel's journey to Mount Sinai where Moses went up to pray on the mountain after Israel had passed through the Red Sea. Jesus is revealing himself to be the better Moses here who not only feeds God's people in the wilderness, but who is himself the very bread from heaven and is also Lord over the sea and nature, as we're about to see. Verse 47, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So the disciples most likely reached Bethsaida later in the evening and then left on a boat for Capernaum much later during the night while Jesus was still talking with his father on the mountain. Verse 48, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. Mark reckons the time of night by Roman time. He says the fourth watch of the night, which was between three in the morning and six in the morning. So it's pitch black. The disciples are out in a boat in the midst of raging winds. This sea is about 700 feet below sea level, so you can imagine it's, it's in a valley, and so when the wind kicked up, it would swirl inside this valley. It was horrendous, or could become horrendous for sailing these little boats. They're about 27 to 30 feet long, usually about only 7 feet wide, so they're packed into it. And there might have been some moonlight, maybe, but Jesus was probably able to see them from where he was because he was the Son of God, because he has the eyes of a shepherd. Look at the middle there of verse, or the end of verse 48. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Just ponder that for a minute. He meant to pass by them. Just walk right on by them and keep going. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So while we might not be sure how Jesus saw them, what is important is how he came to them. He walked on the water. In Job chapter 9, verse 8, God's word says that it is God alone who treads on the waves of the sea. Jesus is acting with divine authority. He's doing what only God can do and coming to them in response to their struggle on the water. But the text says he meant to pass by them. This is very strange in a first reading. If, if he was coming to help, if he was coming because they were struggling, why was he going to pass by them? Hey, guys, just pass right by. I thought that was you from where I was. Beloved, remember Moses on Mount Sinai? The passing of Israel through the Red Sea. Remember the bread in the wilderness. All these images throughout this passage have been recalled. But here and now, as our minds are 
recalling that great act of God's deliverance in the Old Testament, remember what happened after all of that when Moses asked to see God's glory. Do you remember what God said to him? Do you remember how the Lord responded to Moses' request to see his glory? Exodus 33:18 through 23, and he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Do you remember when Elijah was fleeing from Jezebel in the wilderness and he wanted to die? God appeared to him in 1 Kings 19 and told him to go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore into the mountains, then an earthquake, then a fire. The glory of the Lord passed by Elijah. This is no small detail that doesn't mean anything in this story. This is precisely what happened in the middle of the dark night and the raging wind and the waves in front of the disciples. The glory of God himself was passing by. That's what they were meant to think. That's what they were meant to see. Jesus manifested the glory of God in the person of his son right in front of the disciples, full face, full body visible, walking across the top of the water. Lord over the wind, Lord over the sea, Jesus is God. That's what he's doing. That is the one who multiplies bread and fish. That is the one who causes demons to flee. That is the one who's been healing the sick and raising the dead. The covenant God of Israel has appeared in glory to save and deliver his people. And as always, when God's glory is revealed and the holy encounters the unholy, the initial human response is terror. In verse 49 and 50, they thought it was a ghost. And it's not that they had a reason to think that Jesus was dead and this was like his ghost. It's simply that they didn't recognize him immediately. After all, it's the sea. They they think it's an apparition of some kind. The sea is chaos to them. There were stories and legends about the spirits of the sea and all of these things. But this is no ghost. This is no apparition. Jesus assures them of who it is by calling to them. Take heart. It is I. Maybe an allusion to I am, I don't know, but take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. His word speaks comfort from the waves in the wind to the disciples, verse 51. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. His word once more calms the wind and the waves. And we have to ask, beloved, how much clearer could the glory of God have been than that how much more did they need to see and hear to believe what he told them in the middle of 51 and they were utterly astounded for so here's why for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened so far in mark when we've seen astounded or amazed, it's been a positive response to Jesus, at least on the surface. Here, it's a completely negative one. It's a completely negative, astounded feeling that they have. Here it indicates confusion and unbelief. But notice the point of reference for that in verse 52. They were astounded at Jesus walking on the water and calming the wind because they did not understand about the loaves. So the hardness of their heart precedes Jesus walking on the water, the previous miracle of the bread and the fish. It says their hearts were hardened. That is, their hearts were becoming increasingly unable to receive his truth, to respond to it faithfully, obediently. The miracle with the bread and the fish should have been sufficient 
to solidify in the hearts and minds of his disciples that Jesus was the Messiah. Furthermore, that this is the bread sent from heaven. Again, in John, he says that explicitly after this miracle. It should be clear that this is God the Son. But maybe the disciples were caught up in the same expectations for the Messiah that the crowds had, right? Finally, this is the one who will free us from Roman tyranny. That's how they're thinking of the Messiah probably. This is the one that can be our king and give us a place and a nation again. And everything promised has to happen right here, right now. Right? But when Jesus hurries them away, dismisses them, and then goes up alone to pray and tells them to go on as though it was just another day and business as usual and they're going to continue doing what they had been, Rather than them watching Jesus and hear the people say, we're going to make you the king. And him saying, no, 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 I'm going to go pray. Maybe they falter there. Maybe they falter. Or they did falter. It's clear that they did. He's not doing what they want. He's not doing what they expect him to do, maybe, or just really want him to do. He just keeps caring for people and saving people. And they want a warrior who will give them an earthly kingdom. Well, this passage is filled, as we talked about, with so many allusions to the Exodus in Israel in the wilderness. Too many to forget that there was also in that story a hardened heart. The heart of Pharaoh, whose heart increasingly hardened against God. Hardening hearts is dangerous territory then for the disciples. The scripture doesn't speak well of a hardening or a hardened heart. It doesn't go well for hearts like that. They fail to recognize that one greater than Moses is here. That an event or that an event even greater than the Exodus is unfolding before their very eyes. That God himself has come down in the person of his son to deliver his people. And to solidify this in their hearts, he has shown them God's glory face to face, and they have lived. Remember what God told Moses? You can't see me and live. When he, so I pass by. Jesus passes by so that they can see his face and live. And they don't see it. They don't see it. Their hearts are hardening. They're not softening. What is going on? Because if you'll notice, Mark seems intent on piling up the reasons, piling up the glory, the reasons they ought to know they're witnessing the glory of God. In verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was and wherever he came in villages, cities or countryside. You see the descriptions, the bigness They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So obviously, in light of their hardened hearts, Jesus is not done showing them his glory yet. Look at the awe his presence generates. Look at the enthusiasm of the crowds and the power and authority of Jesus. Yes, the glory of God is passing by, but their hearts were hardened. After all they had seen and heard, by now you would think the disciples, the faith of the disciples would be strong or at least getting stronger. Right. Again, I want to stress that it's always our belief that if he was with us in front of us, our faith would be stronger. It would be easier for us to believe. It would be easier for us to obey. I don't think that's the case. Instead of their faith being strong, they're reacting here with fear, which that we can understand, but also with unbelief, rejection in their hearts of his word. They've seen Jesus heal the sick. They've seen Jesus cast out demons and raise the dead. They've witnessed his divine authority in action, feeding multitudes with only five loaves and two fish. As we mentioned briefly last week, this is the beginning of a downward spiral for the disciples in Mark It comes full circle later in, or climaxes, I guess, in chapter 8, verses 14 through 21, at another boat with another discussion about bread and loaves and harder hearts. Jesus will warn them against having eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear. Their faith is in the balance here when their hearts are hardening. Their biggest problem that night was not the wind. 
It was not the sea. and It wasn't that they weren't rowing hard enough or something. Their problem was that they didn't learn the lesson of the loaves. That's why they're afraid on the sea. They hadn't learned the lesson of the loaves, which was that God is at work through Jesus to accomplish his saving purpose. That's why he's here. That's what he'd be preserving them for so that they're not dying out on the sea. Moundsville Baptist Church, we are in the same predicament of hardening hearts if we think Jesus has a different purpose in the world today than he had then. Wanting Jesus to be something other than what he has proclaimed and promised to be hardens our hearts. Claiming promises that he never gave us hardens our hearts because they don't get answered. The superstition with which we follow Jesus makes our hearts hard to him. We get tired of him not changing the world the way we think he should. Or at least not changing our world the way that we think he should. And beloved, a hardened heart cannot see the glory of God as it's been perfectly revealed and fully revealed in Jesus the Savior. And if we can't see the glory of God in Jesus, how are we ever going to know how he intends to help us when we are struggling? That's the context here in which God's glory appears. It's it's not that Jesus intended to pass by them because he didn't care that they were struggling or he wanted them to figure it out on their own. That's why he came to them. The text is clear. He saw them struggling to make headway on the water. So what is this event telling us then about the glory of God in his son? It is the means by which he helps us when we struggle against the winds of the world. We behold his son whose unstoppable purpose it is to save his people. In Jesus' work of saving sinners, we behold the glory of God that is meant to calm our struggling souls. It's because He's a Savior that He is worthwhile to us. A Savior. If we focus on Jesus doing something else, if our desire for Him is to establish an earthly kingdom or simply make our lives a little bit easier, we'll miss His glory. And if we do so, we'll be stuck on our own right in the middle of the storm. We'll become frustrated with Him. Frustration with Jesus is perilous. Perilous. Our kids are going to struggle with sin and temptation and the world and the devil and their own flesh. Our kids are going to struggle. We're going to struggle. We're going to struggle with sin. We're going to struggle with the flesh. We're going to struggle with the world. We're going to struggle with the devil. Jesus, by God's power through the Holy Spirit, is transforming us into his image together. But that all happens in the midst of temptation and sin and defilement and the world and struggling. That's where it happens. Jesus never promised us anything different than what we normally experience, beloved. Frustration with him comes in one way from not understanding his purpose. Jesus is here to save people. To save people. It's not that there's nothing else he's doing, right? He's working all things. The sovereign providence of God is shaping the world to its appointed end when the prophecies will be fulfilled. I'm not denying any of that. I'm saying in the moment, what is God doing now through his son? Saving people. That's why the church is here. He doesn't need us to turn the world in his favor. That's not what we're doing. He doesn't need us to save our loved ones. That's what he does. What we do is proclaim the gospel that we know saves us, whether it is in this life or after it. 
If by his grace we would align our heart and our expectations with his saving purpose, we would see his glory everywhere all the time. Just if nowhere else in the fact that he has saved us, do we realize how amazing of a thing that is? Your salvation is as much, if not more, a miracle than what you just saw. This is Jesus. Walking on the water is cake. It's funny to him. How many of you saw Avengers Infinity War? Big, I figured everybody saw it twice. (laughs) Remember when Thanos, Captain America, who's the best superhero of all time. Why why is there even a discussion? Captain America is the best. So brave, valiant. I'm sure I I love him, right? He's fantastic. He's ready to fight Thanos. Take him head on. He's going to fist fight Thanos. Thanos is a titan. I think he's one of the Eternals, but my comic knowledge should be a little bit off. But anyway, it's not fair. We've seen Captain America kick tail all through these movies. It's Thanos. Just stop. You remember what Thanos does when when Cap, because we are like that, throws a punch and he grabs his fist and Captain America is grunting so hard and Thanos just kind of looks at him like, that's Jesus in the water. Beloved, he spoke that into existence. Of course he walks on it. Of course he walks on it. You know what's amazing? You know what's honestly, genuinely amazing? That I'm here right now preaching about Jesus. If God took his saving hand off me for one second, I'm gone. I'd pursue every desire in my flesh as hard as I could for as long as I could if God removed his spirit from me for one second, my desire for him to obey him, to worship him, to see you be made fully mature in Christ, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. Mom and dad, don't miss the miracle God is doing in your home because your kids were born into your home where they will hear the gospel of Christ Even if they choose one day to deny it, they will hear it from you. That is a miracle. There are people in this world right now that have never heard the name of Jesus. I know I mentioned it before. Did you know at last count, which was recent, there are over 6,000 unreached people groups in the world that we know of? Everybody's always trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. And and look, I understand the urgency. that, that I'm not making fun of that. I'm saying if you really want to speed it up, go. Go and find a people group that hasn't heard and tell them about him. Because when they're all done, we're done. Salvation is a miracle. Nobody is in here because they're a good person. Nobody is in here because they're smarter than their unbelieving neighbor. We're here because God does miracles. But we don't think of salvation as a miracle. We think of just bread and fish and walking on water as miracles. And they are. But beloved, do you know what they mean? I can save you. That's what they mean. Yes, they display the glory of God. No question. But why? Why does God come and show us his glory? You think he needs our praise to be who he is? He's existed eternally. No beginning, no end. How many eons by our time passed before he created? He was just there in glory, in majesty. And then he made us and nothing changed. He just had people to love and pursue and save so that he might be glorified. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that this many people in this town will gather on a Sunday morning to sing and listen to me yell, talk about Captain America. Right? That's a miracle. That's a miracle. We all think, we, we, I got myself out of bed, I got dressed, I got here, I do this, I do that. My salvation's up to me. Salvation of my kids is up to me. Salvation of my neighborhood is up to me. Turning America back to God, whatever that means, that's up to me. Nothing is up to you and I. But telling people, look, look at his glory. Look at his glory. He can save you. He walks on water. He can save you. 
I'm studying Revelation right now. Have been for a while. Uh, I intend, God willing, to take us there on Sunday nights once we're done with Ecclesiastes. But, beloved, Jesus has intentions for His church. This is weighing on me. What has struck me even more than why I got into that study initially, which was, I think, to hone, to clarify my eschatology, my view of the end times, right? What has struck me that I didn't expect more than that has been the undeniable passion of Jesus that His church be holy and faithful. Revelation makes that so clear. I want my church to be like this, says our Lord. And beloved, we need as our church to be ready and open to addressing the hardness of hearts because Mark goes right from the hardness of heart in Jesus' disciples to the traditions of the Pharisees and the people in chapter 7. The connection between hard hearts and tradition is undeniable. And our church has been around for a very long time. I'm a new guy on the block. I've only been here three years this week. Three years. I'm a blip on your radar. Right? I'm serious about that. I'm replaceable. I'm another guy. Right? But we are His church. We are His church. This is His church. It's very easy with longevity and money and time to become so just kind of lapse into a rhythm of life as the church that not intentionally but often goes completely against the grain of God's purpose for a church. Right? What becomes important is existing and keeping the lights on, keeping the doors open, keeping the same programs running, right? Do we have hard hearts while the glory of God is passing by? Traditions and preferences and nostalgia. Do you hear that? Hear how awkward it got in here? You hear that quiet pin? You could hear a pin drop right now. Right? I'm not mad at you. That's not what I mean. But boy, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? Traditions, preferences, nostalgia, they take the place of genuine spirituality. Right? You can tie the mint, dill, and cumin, do all those things and forget the weightier matters of the law. Forget the weightier matters of the truth and the priority of Jesus. Everything becomes a matter of simply keeping things well managed and tidy, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. That's not the point, right? That, well, then we'll just be messy. No, 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 no. That's not the point. Traditions and rituals can become our way of clinging to what we want and what we like and what we wish for, even if it goes against the grain of God's purpose and God's Word. And the proof that our traditions can become idols... Right? Anything you try to take value and meaning from that you hold up is an idol that it, if it isn't him. Right? It doesn't have to be a little statue. It could be something in your home you can't part with or you feel like your life is over. That would be an idol. The proof that our traditions can become idols is shown in how hard we fight to keep them when they might have personal nostalgic meaning to us, but have no bearing whatsoever on Jesus and his accomplishment of his purpose. But when we're threatened with losing those things, we become angry and carnal and divisive and mean-spirited. Right? That's how you know that, that we, we can't be comfortable with any amount of change, anything new. Right? Well, well, this was important to me. My, right, it becomes so critical to us to keep things going the way they always were. As if that, if you don't have that, now we're not spiritual anymore. We make idols out of very good things, right? 
but man-made things. Again, if, if Easter comes around again, I'll use this as the example. If we make it to another Easter, and for some reason we couldn't have a Maundy Thursday service, right? Do you think that means Jesus crawled back in the grave? And he's no longer risen? No longer, we've attached meaning and identity to man-made things. Not that they are bad. There's nothing wrong with a Monday, Thursday service, a Good Friday service, an Ash Wednesday service. Nothing wrong until things God doesn't require become the basis of whether or not we feel spiritual or can have faith. Right? I can't worship unless you play the music I like. What are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? Right? I... I I don't really like the music there. Well, that's good because we're not worshiping you. So it'll be all right. Right? And the thing about them is they traditions have a way of making it extremely hard to see that there's fault in them. Because we've attached that identity, that spirituality to them. We may be committing idolatry as God's own house and not even know it because we painted our stuff in such spiritual, religious, glittery paint. But his kingdom is not of this world. It is possible for disciples to have hardened hearts. It doesn't mean Jesus is done with him. It doesn't mean everybody here has one. We're, we're begging the question. We're, we're asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us if our hearts are hard. He has not come to set up our kingdoms. He's not come to make sure what we want is what happens. He has not come for this. Which is why when he says, count others, look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Why? Because it's some empty, it's just virtuous to be that way? No. Because there's no one in the church that should be clinging to their own interests at the expense of love for their brother and sister. Again, every preference you have might not be somebody else's preference. Therefore, you have to let it go. We just have to let them go. Whether they're mine or anybody else's, a preference is a preference. It carries no weight. It carries no authority. It carries no glory. He has not come to protect our interests. He hasn't come to preserve our legacies. He hasn't come to prioritize our priorities, beloved. These are the very things that have hardened our hearts or that will harden our hearts to his glory. Jesus is passing by. He's here this morning. What's on your mind? Jesus is on the water. He's right out there. Just in eyesight. Standing on the wind and the waves. Loving earthly kingdoms will kill you. They'll kill you. Patriotism is not the cure for our hearts, for the threats that are facing the church today. It's not where we need to double down, beloved. Don't believe that. Doubling down on our preferences is not how we preserve the church in the midst of a carnal and wicked world. That's not how we do it. That's not the message we've been called to preserve or proclaim. We're not transformed by the things of this world. Love for Christ, devotion to Christ is not stoked by the things of the world. We are not put into a position to remain steadfast under trial in hope by the things of the world or the spirits of the age. No, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
2 Corinthians 3, 18 and 4, 6. Notice that. That's the reason for His saving of us. To show us His glory so that we might worship and delight in and obey Him. Jesus is present with us in order that we would behold His glory. Nothing else, no one else's. And in so doing, become His faithful followers. Which means hearts are softened by the majesty and the glory revealed in Jesus in the gospel. In the message of Christ crucified for sinners. What does the glory of God have to do with my everyday life? Then is probably the wrong question. What does my everyday life have to do with the glory of God would be the way the question is more aligned with God's saving purpose. Beloved, beholding Jesus Christ through His Word in the Gospel is the means by which God assures us of our salvation and transforms us one step at a time together into the image of His Son so that we might display His glory to Moundsville. To Glendale, to Benwood and McMacken and Washington Lands and New Martinsville. All of that happens in the minutes and the moments of the life you and I live right here in the Ohio Valley in West Virginia. Whether you're a preacher or a mechanic. The glory of God is meant to have sway and supremacy in the way I think the way I see the world, the way I treat my spouse and my family and my friends and the attitude of my heart and the words of my mouth and the actions of my hands in my home, in the church, at my work, at my school. We know all this. We've heard a different version of this a trillion times as Christians who go to church. Do we really think what's missing is willpower? Willpower doesn't save. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. We don't, when we think of what we need to do, what we need to see, what we need to think in order to change, the glory of God doesn't come into the equation. And Paul couldn't be more explicit. What they saw that night on the water was meant to transform them. And instead their hearts were hardened because when he did that amazing thing with the bread and the fish, they'd already gotten upset with him. So when his glory came along to pass by them, they're just, they're terrified and then they're like, I wonder what they're asking. Their hearts were hardened. How did that come out? He just walked on the water. Jesus is doing no different this morning. When you hear the message of the cross, that's more amazing than walking on water. What he did there is more amazing than walking. Again, that's a day at the office to Jesus. Saving you and I. Oh, beloved, he's present with us now. Jesus Christ is here in Moundsville. He knows about us. Beloved, he sees everything. He knows everyone. He is the first and the last, which is Him telling us He is Lord of the in-between. Jesus is here. When you go home today, Jesus is there. What can I do for my kids? What can I do for my spouse? What can I... Beloved, Jesus is there. And listen, He's not like if you read your Bible seven days in a row, I'll make sure you get that raise at work. No, 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 no. He's saying, I'm here. I am saving your soul. I am keeping my promises. You have no hope if I'm not here. Rather than sitting here on the outside of it, looking at it with a harder heart saying, yeah, I just don't know if that's going to help. Just behold him. Trust him. Apparently, beholding the glory of the Lord. That's all you're doing. Beholding the glory of the Lord. You're not doing something, but beholding is transformational. I think that's a word. Transformative? That's what I wanted. Transformative. Beholding the glory of the Lord changes people. Changes people. Why do you always talk about grace? Why do you just talk about the cross? Because I believe that's how we change. That's the secondary reason I do it. The first reason I do it is because I need it so badly, and I love to talk about it, and it's beautiful, and that's what the Bible tells me to do. Christ crucified for sinners. 
right? Behold his glory, we're transformed. He does it by the beholding. So we can either keep thinking there's other ways to transform, other ways to have an effect on the people we love, or we can behold his glory, trust that he'll transform us his way, his time, and that by putting that glory in front of others, because we believe that's how people are transformed, that's what we'll rely on. Right? That's what we're relying on. Don't just tell kids what they're supposed to do. Tell them who Jesus is. Paint a picture of him so beautiful that other things look ugly. Or at least not as beautiful in comparison. Just put Jesus before people. And listen, let him worry about the rate of change. Let Jesus be the Lord and the shepherd and the Savior. You and I are the mouthpiece. Again, I said it last week. We are not the chefs. We're the butlers, the waiters. Our job is to get the food to the table without messing it up. That's it. Jesus makes it. Jesus is it. His glory is passing by. He's here. How is his glory here? A sinner is proclaiming the gospel to you. You sang this morning with other sinners. Not everybody in here is as clean as they look today. Everybody had a shower this morning, probably. I didn't because I had one yesterday, just to be honest. (laughs) Take two in a row, it dries the skin on the back of my neck. It's gross. I'm not going to... Listen, the glory of God is present in His Son by His Word all the time. You have this all the time. All the time. The glory of God is meant to have sway and supremacy in the way I think, the way I see the world, the way I treat my spouse and my family and my friends, the attitude of my heart, the words of my mouth, the actions of my hands, in my church, in my home, at my job. But notice how Jesus does this as we struggle in those things and in those places. Notice how he does it in this story. Jesus does not say, I'll make this stop. I'll make this go away. He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. What does Jesus say in the wind and the waves? Look at me. Look at me. You see me standing out here on this sea? I'm your Savior. I'm the hope you have. I'm the hope for your kids. I'm the hope for your school. I'm the hope for your job. I'm the hope for your town. Look at me. Look at me. And don't be afraid. Notice where he's saying that from. It's not a book. You don't have to be afraid. I mean, it is now. But you notice where he's saying that from? The waves. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm here. I'm here. Beloved, the one who is Lord over our every moment is a shepherd who sees us with compassion in the midst of our weakness and comes walking to us on the water in the raising wind of this world to show himself to us in such glory that our fears subside and we sail on in full assurance of hope. We don't understand what the glory of God has to do with our everyday lives because our hearts are probably growing hard to it or already hard to it. We haven't beheld it as clearly, as often as we need to. We haven't bought into its value. We don't see what's so great about it or how it's relevant. Because, again, God moving heaven and earth to save my sinful, dead soul is not as immediately miraculous or important to us as God making sure that, you know, America is great again or something. Or as important as God making sure I get what I want out of my church. You know, how many of our... Our faith, uh, how many of us, our faith rides on how things are going at the church? This is just a building. God's going to burn all this up one day and bring heaven down to earth. Hold on to it loosely. Hold on to it loosely. Not because it's bad, but because it's temporary. God's glory in saving me doesn't sound as important as making sure I get what I want out of my church or as important as, you know, God making sure I can be with that person that I want to be with. Can he do that for me? Because if he can't, I don't know what I'm following him for. Can he help me go to that college that I want to attend or have that job or get that raise or, you know, can he get my spouse off my back? All those things. 
And beloved, it is not that God does not have compassion for us in these struggles. It's not that. It's that God has revealed himself in glory to save us and to love us and to redeem us and to rescue us, not just from our sin and our guilt, but also from our belief that anything but him will satisfy us. This is the root of our sinfulness, our idolatry, our love for other things as our God, as our Savior, as our Deliverer, as our Sustainer. So, beloved, get ready. Open our eyes. Jesus is passing by. He's passing by every Sunday. Right? Every Wednesday. Every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. He's passing by. Not to walk by us, but so that we can see. Just look at Jesus. My job, as I see it, is to present him to you in all his glory every time I get in the pulpit. Listen, we'll be doing that again tonight. We won't be honoring America tonight, but we will be worshiping Jesus. You can come back for that too. Isn't that a great deal? Right? Oh, it gets quiet, doesn't it? Maybe our hearts are hard. Maybe we need to see his glory. Be transformed by it. Nothing else transforms people. The glory of our Savior, so that all other loves and smaller glories that can't compare with Him might pass away. He came to rescue you. We must trust Him. This is the way out of despair about the difficulty of life in this world, even for the faithful. So let us repent of our hard-heartedness, Let us ask God to soften our hearts to the truth, to Jesus. Beloved, believe the gospel. Believe in Jesus. He is passing by your pew right now. He is passing by your house. He is passing by your classroom. He's passing by your office. He's passing by your bench. He's passing by your table. He's passing by your desk. Behold him. Behold him through his word. This world and all its treasures are very quickly returning to the dust, beloved. But the word and the glory of the Lord will stand forever. Look to Christ. Look to Christ.